Our scripture reading for today comes to us from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1857. 1857. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Thus ends our reading of God's infallible word. May all who hear it be found blameless before the Lord. Today I'm going to talk to you about church polity, or church governance. For many of you sitting here, today's sermon will be a challenging one. And, and not all of you will agree to as, as why this message will be so difficult. For some of you, you won't like it for one reason. And for others of you, you're not going to like it for a do- totally different reason. However, like every other message that you hear, you should take what is said back to God's word and test it to see if it holds true. For some of you, how, how a church is governed is not so important. So if you're out there thinking to yourself, what, why are we going through the book of Titus? It's just a, a boring letter about church polity and rules and uh, how certain people should behave. I'm not really interested in all of this. If this is you, I would, I would like to challenge you to be patient And remember that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. What is written in the book of Titus is important to God, so it should be important to you as well. My goal when, when I get up here is not to entertain you, but my primary aim is to strengthen your faith. For others of you, how a church is structured is very important to you. In fact, you are heavily involved in the different committees and which help this church to function. These are matters that weigh heavy on your heart. And yet, what you will hear from me today will challenge the way this church is structured. It will put to the, put to the test things that you may like to be done things that you like being done, how you like things to be done, it might 
challenge that notion that you have. To you, I would ask you to consider the source of what I am saying. For if I have done my homework accordingly, then what you will hear will not have come from me, but from God. So when your toes are stepped on, it won't be me that you have a problem with, but your problem will be with God. And finally, there will be some things that I will say that will go against the current trends of our culture. For, for some of you, I will, I will speak of things that seem like backwards thinking. To you, I, I put forth, forth this question. When scripture and the world clash, who is your authority? Will it be God or will it be the culture? You see, today I will be speaking to you about the role of the elders in the church. A role which first congregational doesn't seem to have, at least not in the sense we see described in Scripture. The way, the way this church is structured follows a different model. We have deacons and we have trustees and we have numerous committees. And honestly, from the, the history that I've read, this church was established under deacon leadership from its founding. So, so much of what I'm about to say will be new to many of you. For deacon leadership is all you've ever known. My, my, my hope for today is not to sound critical or harsh, but to instruct. To demonstrate to you what God's word says. And allow the Holy Spirit to apply scripture to your hearts. That being said, let's dive in and see what the Spirit can teach us. Titus 1, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, if you recall from last week's sermon, the, the church in Crete was quite young. Most likely, Paul and Titus spent time there preaching the gospel, seeing God's elect come to faith in the Lord. Yet, for whatever reason, Paul had left and Titus was left. He was to oversee these churches in all the cities. And these churches had now reached a state where they were growing out of their infancy. They were in need of more structure. Being that these churches were fairly new, this, this task given to Titus of finding elders would not have been an easy one. For finding a man who could fit the qualifications of an elder in a place where everyone was a new convert, that would be difficult. In Scripture, we, we see two places where the qualifications of an elder are listed, here and in 1 Timothy. Now, now, Timothy was in charge of overseeing the church in Ephesus, a church that had been around for some time. So in 1 Timothy 3, verse 6, Paul instructs Timothy with these words, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Yet Paul doesn't give this qualification to Titus. For Crete 
only had recent converts. Yet the need for elders was urgent, for false teaching was already creeping in to these congregations. And without sufficient leadership, they would fall prey to the devil's schemes. Even so, Titus was to find these men based on certain character qualities. And Paul gives to Titus three areas to concentrate on. A man's domestic life, a man's public life, and a man's doctrinal knowledge along with his ability to teach. First, a man's domestic life. Verse 6. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. If you notice, the, the first word that Paul uses here to describe an elder is blameless. He will actually use this word again in verse 7, so it should be noted that Paul is putting an emphasis on this trait. What is Paul stating here? He is saying that these men, is he saying that these men should be without sin? Obviously not, since all men are corrupted by sin, even Christians. No, what, what, what Paul is trying to make clear here is that these men should be whole and balanced. They should, they should possess the complete set of the characteristics that he is laying forth. Because anything less than the highest moral standards would put both the reputation and the ministry of the churches in peril. Therefore, an elder must first be a one-woman man. In order to be faithful to the institution that is the church, he must also be faithful to God's first established institution, which is marriage. How can he stay true to one covenant if he's not true to another covenant? He needs to be trustworthy. Likewise, he must manage his whole household well as well. He must be able to raise his children in the faith, teaching them the truths of the gospel, a message which leads to godly living. In other words, he, he is a man who loves his children enough to both discipline them and to demonstrate grace towards them. However, it is not just the domestic life that must be blameless, but his public reputation should be spotless as well. Paul begins with five negatives. Look at verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. There's that word again. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Again, the word blameless begins this list, indicating that this man must be respectable in all the categories that are listed. The first of which is not overbearing. He is not to force his own will upon another. Instead, he is a man who, who, who listens to the opinions of others. He takes into consideration the needs and the wants 
of those around him. He is also not to be quick-tempered. He doesn't allow things to, to anger him easily. He's not given to drunkenness. He won't allow himself to be overcome by intoxicating substances. Instead, he maintains a steady control over his actions. He must also avoid violence. He must not be abusive or use his physical strength to get his own way. And finally, he must not pursue dishonest gain. He is to be a man who is trustworthy and honest and fair. He is not a greedy man, but a generous man. Paul then continues on describing the positive attributes of such a man. Look at verse 8. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. First, he must show hospitality. This is more than what we think of today. In, In our culture, hospitality is welcoming someone into your home, taking care of their needs, giving them food if they're hungry. While this same thing was true back then, there was more to it than that. Given that persecution had struck the church, such hospitality was both urgent and risky. Urgent in the fact that some Christians were forced out of their businesses and homes. They had no place to turn to except to their brothers and sisters in the Lord. Risky in that identifying with those that you take into your home might bring about a similar persecution. You see, an elder was to be an example of putting the needs of others ahead of his own needs. He was to be hospitable. Second, an elder must be a man who loves what is good. It's not just that he does what is good, but he loves those things. Seeing such a quality in a man indicates a sanctifying change within his heart, a change produced by the Holy Spirit. Next, we see he is to be self-controlled. Here we see the opposite of both that quick-tempered man and the one that's given to drunkenness. Those things that Paul forbids in the, in the first grouping. He is a man who does not act rashly or out of emotion, but instead he puts careful thought into both his words and his actions. He is to be upright. In other words, he is obedient to the civic laws of society, so long as they are in harmony with God's commands. He is to be holy or set apart. There is a certain quality about this man that distinguishes himself from those around him. He is like that sailor that doesn't cuss or that fraternity brother that doesn't drink. He is the the outlier in the group, a man whose actions are representative of his Lord. And finally, He is a man who demonstrates discipline. 
His life is organized and structured. All of these character traits, they, they demonstrate an obedience to God's word. And they, they represent to an unbelieving world how God can transform a person as they follow Jesus. But these qualities are not enough. For an elder must have a solid grasp on God's word as well. Look at verse 9. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. This man must be convinced by the gospel message. He must understand the important truths that scripture lays forth. When it comes to the major beliefs that deal with the nature of God or of his salvation, there shouldn't be any error. An elder must know his Bible well for two reasons. First, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. It is through the teaching of God's word that healthy Christians are produced. But second, with the danger of false teaching creeping into the church, an elder must be able to refute those who speak falsely. Now, sometimes things are spoken out of ignorance. So an elder must be able to lovingly point those who lack knowledge to the correct passages in order to correct them. However, there are also times when lawless men purposely twist God's word. So an elder must be able to rebuke such a man swiftly, lest the false teaching spreads among the elect. But we'll deal more with that issue when we cover verses 10 through 16 next week. Now, if you've been paying close attention, you will have noticed that I continuously use the words man and he. This is because scripture is very clear that the position of an elder is to be filled by men only. And it's not that women don't possess these qualities. Many do. In fact, all of the characteristics, except for one, are required of all Christians. So each and every one of you, these are things that you should be aspiring for. The one caveat is this. An elder must be able to teach. And not all Christians will have the gift of teaching. Now, I, I know of women who have godly character both inside and outside of their home. And there are women who have both great faith and great knowledge of the scripture. And there are women that are able to teach even better than I can. Yet God has restricted the role of an elder to men alone, particularly because of its teaching aspects. Why is this? Look with me at 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. Now, the context of this passage is Paul giving instruction to Timothy on how proper Christian worship should be conducted. Verse 11 begins like this. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach 
or to have authority over man, she must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, many have argued that Paul was talking about a cultural situation in Ephesus and that this cannot be binding upon all churches. Yet the context doesn't bear this out. For Paul ties such a decree to both creation and the fall. God created men and women with different roles. And these roles have bearing within the church as well. What we saw in the garden was that God created Adam as the head of the family and Eve as his helpmate. Now this doesn't in any way make Adam superior to Eve. They just have different roles to play. Adam was to lead and Eve was to follow. In the fall, we see that things got reversed. As Eve listened to the serpent's false teaching, Adam did not step in and take charge. He should have been the one to rebuke Satan. Instead, Eve took the lead. She ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband. And Adam followed. And so we see the roles reversed in the fall. The reason God doesn't allow women to be elders in the church is based in creation itself. Now, here at First Congregational Church, we, we have set ourselves up as a deacon-led church. And this has left us with a, a void and confusion in leadership. In the, in the New Testament, the example is set for a plurality of elders to serve alongside deacons. Elders are to care for the spiritual needs of the church, while, while deacons, who can be women, are to care for the physical and logistical needs of the church. As of right now, as your pastor, I am the only one holding the role of an elder. We are missing lay elders. And because of this void in leadership, the diaconate, as well as other committees, have had to take upon themselves duties of an elder. And so, while we are a functioning church, and God has used this church to further his kingdom, our structure is not set up in a manner that adheres to biblical practice. As the pastor of a congregational church, a church where the, the, the congregation as a whole makes decisions, I don't believe that I have the authority to rule. Rather, I have been given the authority to guide and to educate. Would I like to see changes in the way we structure our church? Sure, but that's not my call. That responsibility, it falls upon your shoulders. My responsibility is to make God's word plain to you so that you can make an informed decision. That being said, I'll, I will leave the matter for you to chew on. But let's review. Paul charged Titus to appoint elders in each of the towns of Crete. He listed the characteristics of those of what he was to look for when seeking out such men. And he broke it down into three categories, their domestic life, 
their public life, and their knowledge of the scriptures, along with the ability to teach, these men were to be blameless. Not in the sense that they were perfect, rather that they were complete, demonstrating quality in each category. Of course, there is one who is blameless in the other sense of the word. Christ is the true elder of the elect. He is that perfect husband to his bride, the church, loving her with a selfless love, going to the cross and dying for her so that she could be forgiven. And he looks after his children as well, giving them faith to believe and then sanctifying them by his Holy Spirit. Jesus is not overbearing. His burden is light. He is not quick-tempered, bearing patiently with those who rebel against him. He is not given to drunkenness, but of a sober mind. He is not violent, but teaches us to turn the other cheek. He doesn't pursue dishonest gain. Instead, he gives of himself. Christ is hospitable, welcoming in those who are rejected by the world. And he loves what is good, being pleased when his children show kindness to their neighbor. He is self-controlled. He remained on the cross when he could have easily gotten down. He is upright, for the world could not find any credible charge against him. He is holy. He is pure and without sin. He is disciplined, allowing his father to direct his steps. And he holds firmly to the trustworthy message, for he is the one who spoke it. And now he calls on you to trust in him, to repent of your sins and fall under the lordship of your true elder, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we are challenged by your word today. There's a lot here, some of which may be very new to people. We, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. And may we look to your Son, our true elder, the one who, who loved us so much that he went to the cross and died for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.